0: You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. So we are launching into this mini-series today uh, as we continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke, a series called More Than Enough. This past week, um, as we do most Mondays, our staff got together for what we call a staff huddle. And at these staff huddles, we have about a 30-minute to one-hour meeting where we discuss things about the service, things about uh, the church, of what's coming up, what just happened. And one of the key questions we always ask is, hey, where did you see Jesus move? Or what Jesus conversations did you have yesterday? And as we began to have this conversation this past Monday... Uh, there was some, you know, debate here and there, and then we moved into some of the, I guess, the, the the details of the meeting. And at one point, the tension got so thick in the room, our worship resident, Thailand kind of looked out and goes, whoa, you could cut this with a knife. And then our admin, Ari, goes, what does that mean? And she, she had never heard the phrase, and so we then began to try to explain to her, like, you know, when the tension in the room gets so thick, it's almost like you could just, like, it's, it's palpable. It's tangible. Like, you could cut it with a knife. And she goes, well, that sounds intense. And, and I think she's right. I think there there is moments in our life, right, in conversations and relationships with people where the tension becomes so thick that it does feel like something you can just cut with a knife. And as I was preparing for today's sermon, I started asking myself this question, like if if we can feel the tension from just human interaction and simple facial expressions and body language, what can we feel from the spiritual world? What kind of tangible, palpable feelings do we have when we start talking about things that are heavy, like angels, demons? Satan, hell, all of these things. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you felt maybe a spiritual tension? A moment, maybe it's in your quiet times. Maybe the tension was a good thing, right? Where you just felt the presence of the Lord. And He was almost like palpable, tangible. Like you could feel that He was right there with you. Maybe it was in a worship gathering. Middle of a song, or a moment where God showed up for you, and you were like, Man, He is here. This is a very thick spiritual moment. Maybe you've been to a certain location. Several years ago, I was uh, on a weekend trip with some buddies down in New Orleans, and we were standing outside of a house, and I I felt a very dark presence over this house. And as I was standing there, we were actually on one of those like historic tours, and they started talking about all the people that had been murdered at this house, and all of the stories, but I felt the presence long before I heard the stories, and then they made sense of why I maybe felt some sort of presence. Maybe you've been around certain people, and you've just entered their presence, and you've either felt, man, a really positive glow, uh, something. You couldn't even explain it. It was just, they had it, right? And then you've been around other people, and you knew that they didn't have it, and it was something else, right? Have you had some sort of spiritual tension in your life? Today, we're going to dive deep into what I'll just call it the spiritual realm. You know, we are getting closer to Halloween, where the spiritual realm and darkness are a little more unveiled, and so it's actually timely, I believe, how the Lord kind of, you know, predestined this moment. Uh, Like I say, we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, so I didn't plan. Hey, let's talk about demons as we get closer to Halloween. That wasn't on my radar at all, but I think the Lord, um, in so many ways, His providence has showed up today. So the title of my sermon, if you're taking notes, is Jesus and the Demonic. Jesus and the Demonic. So let's dive right in. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. I want to take us through a couple of verses, and then we're going to dive into some, some deep stuff. That first verse in 26, it says, Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So I want you to see this picture, this, this story, in really the full context in which Luke is writing. So what's happening is this is right after the moment where Jesus calms the storm. So the 12 disciples, and possibly more, uh, and Jesus have sailed from Their location to garrisons across the Sea of Galilee, and these storms have come have come about, and they were stressing about these storms, and then they wake up Jesus, and Jesus calms the storm. Interestingly enough, there are some who believe that this kind of point of view, this this picture that you will read when you are see that when you read this moment, is a kind of foreshadowing of what is indicative to what Jesus is about to experience and the others are about to experience, and the onslaught of demonic opposition is at work. And what I mean by that is you see a storm that has come about, and some could say, oh, well, Jesus brought the storm, or others might say, well, this was a storm that Jesus allowed through demonic opposition to only show the disciples in in kind of a, a preparatory way to say, here is what is coming. When we get to this land, if you think this storm is bad, just wait. Until we get here. And so when you read it in context, it isn't like, oh, this great little storm, and then separate, there's all of a sudden this interaction with a man who is possessed by a demon. What most theologians would have you see is that these two stories are very much interconnected into the emotional uh, situation that everyone involved is experiencing. So I want you to kind of be there as well, to know that I don't think the storm is one thing, and then all of a sudden this. Demonic person is another thing. They could likely and most likely are interconnected. So Jesus has now entered into fully Gentile land. And here's what that means. Everyone with him was essentially Jewish. Either they grew up in Jewish parts or they were 100% Jewish. And now they are entering into Gentile land, which is meaning you ain't Jewish, right? And so the culture is very different. The language may be different. The things and the way you experience life would be different. And how do we know that this is all of a sudden a very non-Jewish territory? Well, as we've already read, in verse 32, you skip down, there's a mention of a herd of pigs. You would not have that in a Jewish territory. You would not have a herd of pigs. Why? Well, because pigs were unclean animals. So Jews did not own them. They did not raise them. They did not eat them, they lost out on that one, or they would not come near them because they would then be considered ceremonially unclean. If you flip flip back to Deuteronomy 14, verse 8, it says, and the pig, because it parts the hoof, but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. You may ask, okay, hey, why are they not allowed to eat pig or be a part of it? Jesus chose the Jews to be a very separate people. And so when he put laws and binders and things in their life, what he was doing was saying, how can I make you very visibly different than every other people group? You're a small people group. You're not necessarily this big powerhouse. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my stamp on you in every single way. And one of the ways is I'm going to make it to where you can't eat bacon. Right? And that's that's what happens in this moment. And we see these pigs... And so we know that Jesus and his disciples are no longer in Jewish territory. Now, interesting little side note. Uh, So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this moment. Uh, Mark and Luke record it, um, and they kind of just say a herd of pigs, whereas Matthew actually records it. uh, Excuse me, it's actually Mark who says this. Matthew and Luke just say a herd. Mark actually mentions that there's 2,000 pigs present. And so that's a ton of bacon. Just a little side note for you. Uh, A lot of folks there. So continue on. Verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tomb. So what Luke is giving us here is a snapshot of this man's situation. Here is someone living naked in a cemetery. Now, There are few cultures where it's acceptable to be naked in public. Can I get a praise of the Lord? Here we go. There are few cultures where it's acceptable to live in a cemetery. But there are probably no cultures where it's acceptable to live in a cemetery whilst being naked 100% of the time. So Luke is painting this picture so that you and I can see that this man is is troubled. Interestingly enough, as I said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, I'll record this. Matthew is the only one recording this who would have actually been present, meaning Mark and Luke were disciples from afar, meaning they came to know Christ later in their journey, and they would not officially been considered apostles. But Matthew actually walked these moments, and so Matthew actually records a very specific situation, and I want to share this with you because maybe you're studying through uh, the Bible in a year, you're doing through your quiet times, and You're recalling this instance from Luke and this instance from Mark, and you could go, man, there's a contradiction in Scripture. I can't believe it. Jesus doesn't exist. And I would say, slow down, all right? So when Mark and Luke record this, they only record the presence of one person. But when Matthew records this, he records the presence of two people. So you say, oh, there is a contradiction, Chris. How could there not be? And here's how there's not. Mark and Luke don't say, there's only one dude. You know what they say? there's a man who. You know what Matthew says? There is two. A contradiction would be if Mark and Luke said there was only one man, and then Matthew said there is two. That would be a contradiction. Nod your head if you get me, and if you don't, you can see me after class, and we'll figure it out, okay? (laughs) So, here's this picture of these men, likely, that are very troubled. They are outcasts in this society, and we're going to dive deeper into what this looks like. Verse Twenty-eight. It says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now this demon automatically recognizes Jesus for exactly who he is, the Son of the Most High God. Again, Matthew being present, he records it a little bit differently. He says it like this in verse 29 of chapter 8, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Still the recognition of who Jesus is, but then he says this, have you come here to torment us before the time? So in this picture, in this moment of history recaptured by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not only do the demons recognize Jesus and his authority, that they also recognize that there's a time of torment that is headed their way, and this moment is not it. So what I want to do as quickly as possible um, is I want to answer two questions. Number one, what is this time of torment? And number two, what is a demon? Number one, what is this time of torment? And number two, what is a demon? Now, I want to avoid two errors. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It reads like this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, meaning the human race, can fall about the devils, demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence entirely. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, meaning the, the demons. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. Paul references this idea of a spiritual realm and a spiritual war happening in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what what we're going to unpack in these two questions is a lot of stuff. And I want to first say, you're not going to capture it all in a 35-minute sermon this morning. So what we're going to do to try to help educate you and give you some tools and resources to kind of move forward, if you're interested in this, is we're going to send a podcast later out in the week. And we're also going to send a couple of teachings Uh, So, I'll give a little bit of credit as I prepare kind of what we're doing today. Uh, I look to several different commentaries like I do each week. If you don't know what a commentary is, it's these really, really smart guys who have been studying the scriptures for years and years and years and years. And instead of, um, you know, just having one little piece of paper about a book, they have an entire book about, like, the book of Luke. So, like, one of the commentaries that I use for the book of Luke is two books thick, that is, they are that thick combined. So you have two books about that thick piece, and they only talk and unpack the historicity, the language, the context, and the application today for Luke. And so I consult most of those commentaries week to week as we're... Diving in. This week, I dove into uh, a teaching from a guy named David Platt, who did a a teaching at what's called Secret Church several years ago. I'm giving you all of this kind of like a, um, I guess, like a bibliography, right? So I want you to know that I'm not that smart. I stole a lot of this information from a lot of people who are way smarter than me, and I'll send you those resources later in the week. Uh, There's also a really helpful website called Got Questions. um, And so, what I'm going to do in the next 15 to 20 minutes is I'm going to run a lot of information. Hopefully you retain a good amount of that information this morning. If you do not, we're going to send you some stuff to help you retain some of that. So let's dive in. First question, what is a demon? Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work out evil in the world. In Genesis 1, what we see reveals that before God created the cosmos, nothing existed. But by the end of this chapter 1, by the end of all of these verses, we get to verse 31, and God looks over creation and he says what? That it is good. And so what it can be surmised from chapter 1 in Genesis is that the implication is that angels have now been created because they do require time and they require power. And here's what I mean by that. If nothing existed outside of God before Genesis 1... That means what couldn't have existed before then? The answer is angels, right? So he then creates angels, and we know that by the end of chapter 1, these angels have not fallen. They are still good. So angels were created in this time. Hence, they are bound by time and power in some form, even if it isn't relative to our understanding of time and power. Okay? So in order to answer the question about what is a demon, we first have to go back and answer the question about what are angels. So, what are angels? Angels are spiritual beings without physical bodies. Well, hold on. I thought there was some this, that, and the other. Hold on. We'll get there. Angels are mentioned many times throughout Scripture. We see 108 appearances in the Old Testament, 165 in the New Testament. These angels have many names. You can go through the verses and you can see them. Psalm 104 calls them messengers. Job 1 calls them angels. Psalm 89 calls them holy ones. Hebrews 1 calls them ministering spirits. And then again in Daniel 4, he calls them messengers and holy ones. Inside of these groups of people and all of these things, they have been given ranks or organizing categories, if you will. So angels have been kind of split up into these Groups of people, more so for their purpose and their gifting, but also for our understanding of how they work. So there's the cherubim, the seraphim, the living creatures, and arch angel, angel. Excuse me. Most of these names are to help us better understand the purpose and direction of an angel's attention. So, what was the whole purpose of an angel? They were created to glorify God. That is the ultimate purpose. We could dive into a lot of other purposes of why they exist, but the ultimate purpose of why they exist and everything they do is to glorify God. Psalm 148.2, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his heavenly hosts. They have a whole list of things that they do, but for time purposes, we're only, only going to uh, discuss what we've discussed so far. And we're going to move on to how angels became demons. But I do want to say this. I will say, it is not biblical that you will specifically have a guardian angel prescribed to you. Or that someone close to you who has passed away has now become some version of an angel and is now watching over you. This is the stuff of fiction and not the stuff of the Bible. So, you know, you can get a tattoo or a bumper sticker or something about guardian angels. And that's great for you. It ain't biblical. Just FYI. All right. So let's go back to our question of what is, in fact, a demon. Remember, our answer was what? Demons are evil Angels who sinned against God and who now continually work out evil in the world. But you may have a question. When did angels fall and become demons? Well, there, there's some, a little bit of debate about this, but I think the easiest answer would be to say somewhere around Genesis chapter 3. So you have the creation story in Genesis 1, and then from maybe a little different perspective, they say it, he says it again in Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis 3, we have what's called the fall. And this is kind of the depiction and the story of what we think of as Adam and Eve's fall, but there's also inherently inside of it the fall of the leader of demons. His name would be Satan, and possibly at this moment the demonic. Some might believe it happens later in Genesis 6, but most theologians would agree that Genesis chapter 3 is this moment, and it is implied inside of the text. So in order for us to really kind of understand demons— deeper, we need to understand an overview, at least, of their leader, this guy we call Satan. So who is Satan? He is an angel created by God who served as a cherub. Remember the cherubim? So he would have served in that rank until he rebelled against God, and he now opposes God in every way. I have put several scripture references underneath that point. Again, we will email these out, so I don't feel like you got to write them all down. So, here he is, created as a cherub, he served as such, he fell because of power and pride. Uh, I don't know if I have the scripture up there, but Isaiah 14, 12, refers to his um, his fall it says how have how you have fallen from heaven o morning star son of the dawn you have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations you said in your heart i will ascend to heaven i will raise my throne above the stars of god i will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain i will ascend above the tops of the clouds i will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to the grave to the depths of the pit. So the occasion of Satan's fall, his turning to the dark side, in Star Wars words, is his sin was power. The nature of his sin, though, was pride. He existed to go above or be at least like the Most High, and he now, in that sin, opposes God in every single way. Zechariah chapter three says, "Then he showed me Joshua with the high priest." standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick? What we know about Satan throughout Scripture is that he has several names. First and foremost, obviously, Satan, the adversary, the evil one, the slanderer, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Belial, tempter, prince of this world, accuser, destroyer, and as mentioned earlier, morning star. He takes many forms throughout scripture. He looks like a snake, (coughs) hence Genesis chapter 3. Snake in in, in Hebrew can sometimes be translated as dragon or as sea creature. You also see him as angel of light, But since he and his demons were originally angels, they are at their core what? Spiritual beings with no form. So when you think of an angel or you think of a demon, uh, Amy and I were listening to a book series at one point kind of outlining spiritual warfare. It was fiction, excuse me, non-fiction. Nope. Fiction based in nonfiction, and they liked he, the author liked to depict these wars where angels and demons had these big, like Lord of the Rings type swords. And what was the name of that thing? Piercing the darkness, and they would like go to the battle, and like you'd be sitting there reading your Bible, and they're in your living room just like going at it, right? I don't know if that's the specific picture that we see in scripture. It's a great book to read or listen to. The guy's voice is amazing, um, but it, it's, it's fun, but not necessarily fact. Does that make sense? So when we think about angels and demons, um, you, you can think of the little cartoon characters on a shoulder if that helps you. I, I, I just think of it more of like a spiritual thing that I, I can't really wrap my head around. They, they exist, um, but I, I don't know what tangibility looks like for me. That's just how I look at it. You can look at it if you want to. You want to be like a little Elmer Fudd? Go, hey, you do you, right? So we kind of have this picture of demons and Satan and angels to a degree, But I think a big question is, like, what what do these people do? So we saw that angels were created to glorify God, and I wasn't going to go into all the details of what they do, because today's sermon focuses more so on this interaction with Jesus and the demonic. So what do demons do? So Satan and his demons work to drive a wedge between (laughs) man and God. They use false philosophies. They use false religions. They use false ministers, unfortunately. False doctrine. So anytime you say, hey, doctrine is not important, boom. They use false disciples. They use false morals. Again, in the packet that I send you, each one of those claims that I just made will have scripture references backing up each and every single one. The attack, that they will attack using governments, using sickness. They'll use destruction through people, persecution of the church. They will try to plant seeds of doubt. As we sang earlier and Hunter so eloquently you know, kind of informed us, they, they will instruct and, and give us seeds of fear. They will promote division. They will tempt us to all sorts of sin and evil. So they work in a multitude of ways to uh, tempt and to prod and to push people to deny existence and glorification of Yahweh, of Jesus, of the Lord. So, the big question that everyone asks is, what about like possessions and all these different things? And we'll, we'll get there in just a second, but I want to say demons absolutely do possess people. But specifically, possessions only happen to non-Christians. So, you would say, why? why? Why is that a thing? Well, Christians cannot be possessed because the Spirit of God has already possessed you. You are a son of or daughter of the Most High, and your body is now his. And there is nothing else that can be inside of that temple besides his holiness. That's an amen moment, by the way, just FYI. But here's, here's the tough part. We cannot be possessed as Christians, but we can be oppressed. So possession cannot happen as a Christ follower, meaning a demon cannot take over my temple because the Lord has already done that. But I can absolutely be afflicted and oppressed by demons. And they can pseudo-attach themselves to my life in a, in a way. But I cannot be possessed. So we'll talk a little bit more about the oppression and some of that towards the end of the sermon. But what do these possessions abs- actually look like? The Bible gives some examples of people being possessed or being influenced by demons. From these examples, we can, we can find some symptoms or, uh, of demonic influence. And we can gain insight as to how a demon maybe possesses someone. There's a whole list of scriptures that I've placed up there. If you're viewing as I'm talking, if you want to just kind of look at those. In some of these passages above, what you'll see is that the demon possession causes physical ailments, such as the inability to speak, epileptic symptoms, blindness. In other cases, it causes the individual to do evil. Think about Judas being the primary example there. Uh, if you refer back to Acts 16, the spirit apparently gives a slave girl some ability to know things well beyond the uh, learning and knowledge that she should have. In our text today, the demon-possessed man, he was possessed by a multitude of demons called legion. He had superhuman strength and you know, got to live naked among the tombs. I don't know if that's a demon you know, skill or what, but hey. King Saul, after rebelling against the Lord, was troubled by an evil spirit which apparently affected him and gave him a depressed mood and an increased desire to then kill David. Basically, what, what you need to see in those scriptures is that possessions and oppressions can greatly affect our lives. And so the, the question that you may have today is, okay, all that stuff was like biblical and great at those times. Does it still happen today? Can oppression and possession still be like a thing right now? Like, you know, you got all these great little movies out here, or terrible movies, whichever one, you know, you court you fall into. Is it a thing? Well, the short answer, are exorcisms real, is yes. And the first evidence I would give to that is you literally just read a story about an exorcism in Luke chapter 8. Exorcism was practiced by various people in the Gospels and the book of Acts. The disciples, as part of Christ's instructions, were to do so in Matthew 10. Uh, others did it in Christ's name, Mark 9, Luke 11, Acts 16, Acts 19. The purpose of Jesus' disciples performing exorcisms was to show Christ's dominion over the demons. You could specifically look to Luke chapter 10. But it was also to verify that these disciples were acting in His name and by His authority. It revealed their faith, or maybe even their lack of Of faith. Another way of saying it is that exorcisms in some way, shape, or form are this evidence to report back that Jesus is more than enough. It was obvious that this act of casting out demons was important to the ministry of the disciples. It happened fairly regularly. So the question may be. Are are exorcisms still needed today? So we can answer the question, are they real? Yes, they absolutely are real, but are they still needed today? And my answer to this, you may not like. It depends on who you ask. Okay? Now, that obviously, in and of itself, is not an answer, but what I'm going to give you is kind of both answers, and then I'll tell you where I land, and then you can make your own assumption, or I guess, answer from there. So, (coughs) Some Christians believe that the special revelation of the Bible that we have received is enough to fend off the demonic today. I'll I'll read you this quote. It says, Interestingly, there seems to be a shift in the latter part of the New Testament regarding demonic warfare. The teaching portions of the New Testament, excuse me, New Testament, Romans through Jude these are like the epistles these are letters written from the apostles to the churches for the building up of the body refer to demonic activity so it's it's referenced yet they do not discuss the actions of casting them out nor are believers exhorted to do so we are told to put on the armor to stand against the demonic in Ephesians chapter 6 we are told to resist the devil, James 4, be careful of the devil, be careful of him, 1 Peter 5, and not give him, the devil, room in our lives, Ephesians 4. However, we are not told how to cast him or his demons out of others, or that we should even consider doing so. So there's one camp that would say, listen, we've been given this amazing authority in the scriptures, in the word of God, and when you follow the, the, the word and you look at it, what you see is, yes, there is a, a portion, a, a moment in time where these things happened seemingly regularly. I, I would push back to say, I don't know how regular it was. You have a handful of accounts through a very special account in Scripture. So I don't know if we were walking to the, you know, the general store, if we just, hey, let's get this demon out of this dude. Like, I don't know if that happened like that, okay? But then what they're asserting to is that when you look at the epistles, meaning Jesus has now ascended, he's no longer walking the earth, and now the apostles are leading the church, what you see time and time again is not the apostles teaching about how to cast out demons. Like when this cat's being disruptive in your church, they didn't say just cast a demon out, they said cast him out oftentimes. How do you you have a, a service without disruption and all these different things. They would address those types of things. They would address how you help the poor and help, help those in need and love people and pray and how, how do you have a church? And so their stance would say, well, you've got everything you need. Put on the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of truth and all these different things. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Like be washed like the, the river washing over you and let the Spirit of God do all of it. And I think it's a pretty, if I'm honest, it's a pretty good argument. There's another side of this, though. So others refer specifically to a a couple of texts, but one text in specific, Mark chapter 16, where they would say that exorcism and kind of casting out demons is a part of our calling as Christians. Mark 16 verse 15 says, And he said to them, this is the Great Commission as recorded by John Mark. Mark, as we know him. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then he says this, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up certain serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now some would read this and go, "See, it's right there, black and white. This is what the evidence of a Christ follower is." Others would say, "Well, if you look at the other Great Commission accounts, Mark is the only one who says this. He's the only one who highlights this portion." And then they could go into the, you know, the historicity and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these different things and say, "Well, you know, only three fourths of the scriptures." Um, maybe have this or don't have this, and they, they have this word, and they move this over here, and so I don't, I don't know if I, that portion right there isn't enough places for me to build an entire theological or doctrinal belief system off of. And the other person would push back to, well, okay, hey, it's in Mark 16, and then you see it repeatedly throughout Jesus' works, and then you see it number of times in Acts, and so it's a thing. And that's just how they believe. And I think either stance is okay. And I'll tell you where I land. I land in open but cautious water. Open but cautious. So, here's what that means. I I firmly believe that exorcisms and deliverance ministries still have a place to exist today. However, I believe first and foremost that they should always stand on the Word. And that the gifts that they've been given by God are unique to them. And the uniting factor that they and us have, that we share together, is we have God, Himself, and anything that doesn't give Him the glory and the honor and the authority cannot be from Him. And I think a good passage that points to this place um, is 1 Corinthians 12. Before I read that, what, what I'm saying in the open but cautious is I, I think if if you wake up with a daily thirst of like, let's go cast out some demons, I think you're having like maybe some misunderstandings in how the normality of this thing would happen. I do think if you woke up every day in a preparation of battle for demonic oppression and demonic presence in your life, I think that is a healthy place for a Christian to be. Because guess what? You are oppressed every single day by the demonic, by the sin of this world, and by actual demons who are messing with stuff. And we'll get to that in just a second. But the unity, pointing back to some things. First Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1 through 2, and I'll skip to 4. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. That's kind of that demonic teaching right there, That you're highlighting this idea that there's um, false doctrines and false leaders and all these things. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. So there's a lot of giftings, but one spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by the one spirit to another working of miracles to another prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills so if somebody walks up to you and go you should have the same exact gifting as I do go back to first Corinthians 12 and go you think right no, we have different giftings. We're different people. God has made you uniquely you. So all of this information that I've just given you points to answer two questions, right? What is this time of torment? And then what is a demon? So I believe we have succinctly answered the latter portion. Like, what is a demon? You should know kind of what a demon is, what do they do, where they come from, all these different things. The former one, the time of torment, I'm going to unpack just a little deeper in our podcast, but the short answer for that is that even the demons recognize Jesus' authority and that there will be a one day reckoning, excuse me, there will be one day a reckoning. So there will be a time for these demons to be punished. So they recognize this, they see this. So what does this text teach us today? And you can lean in and we're, we're closing and landing the plane right now. So here's what happens. the Demonic opposition is still alive. This is what we see in this text. Jesus sees this man who has been bothered by demons. He casts them out and then the pigs go over the cliff and they die. So what we can see from this text is that demonic opposition is both real in possession and oppression. So what, what does this look like today? Well, I, I want to say first off that Anytime that we see movements of sin, not moments of sin, not individual sin necessarily, but movements, entire movements of sin, what we can assume and what we can know is that demonic activity is present. And and I want to tell you that because... As I mentioned some of these things moving forward, there's going to be, uh, I think, a portion of us in this room that are going to hear some of the things that I say, and you're going to go, ooh, Chris, you just landed that really hard, or blah, blah, blah. And what I want you to see is when there's an individual sin repeated by many, and maybe um, praised and worshipped and elevated, that can only be one thing. And it's not of the Lord, and which points us to spiritual warfare and demonic activity. Okay? Here's what I mean. How does, what does this look like in our life today? I'll start off with the hard one. The LGBT community is filled with hate. Listen, I, I am not condemning an individual. Every single one of us is fallen from the Lord. We, we fell short of his glory. All of us, the liar, the heterosexual in adultery, the homosexual, the cheat, whatever. We, we go through this whole list. And you could try to clean up the list, and guess what? You're still falling. Jesus came to give us a new way, a new life. He shed his blood for newness, for a relationship to be resolved and be redeemed and be restored. And when you see a people who rally in sin, because I don't know if you notice this, there is no middle ground with this specific group. Like there's no like libertarianism and like, hey, Christians, you want to believe that it's sin? You just stay over there and that's fine, right? That doesn't really exist. Now, I'm not telling you that all Christians have taken a great stance kind of in love to point the LGBT community to Jesus because there haven't been. There's been a lot of hate on that side too, and we'll address that. But when you see a movement of people who are rallying against another people who I would say a majority of Christians are not in your face. They're not walking up to you with this big sign and going, you're going to hell because you're gay. I'm not saying there's not any. I'm just saying a majority. I don't believe do. But then the other side, there is a majority. There, there is a divide. I, I felt it very real. In Scotland. Very real. If you go to the cities of our country, you will feel it. There there, there will be, in just a, a week or two, there will be like a drag queen show at one of our establishments here in Macon. So you don't have to leave our city. There is demonic activity in the community there. I just got a bunch of dislikes on my social media. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to belittle the situation. I, I, I want us to dive into the scripture and really and see that we are at battle. Our battle is not to fight, but to surrender to Jesus and give him all authority because he is more than enough. And our battle is really to love and to bring the truth in love. So don't leave this place going, oh, there's demonic activity, we need to do something. The only thing you need to do is hit your knees and surrender. I think when we look at terrorists who bomb Israel and other countries and want to destroy anything that isn't bending the knee to their belief system, what we know is what? It's filled with hate. And hate only comes from one place. The way Christians have handled the Crusades, the Reformation, slavery, political issues even today. The way we've handled them, the things we've highlighted and seen, what what we have noticed is what? There's a lot of hate. And hate only comes from one place. The confused teenager, college kid, young adult and more who feels alone, anxious, feels like they're in darkness and wants to end their life. You know what they're caught in? They're caught in the middle of a demonic warfare. We need to go to battle for them. We need to be seeking the Lord for them. If it's you, you need to speak up and let me seek the Lord for you. Don't walk alone, wherever you are. There is more than enough healing in Jesus. Do not walk alone. I'm telling you, wherever you are, whoever you are, camera later, podcast later, Hit me up. I will be there for you. You are not alone, no matter where you are. It doesn't always have to be that extreme, though, either. The demonic activity could look like dark and sour moods that we woke up in. That Sometimes we would look at it and just say, oh, that's just, you know, waking up on the wrong side of the bed. It may be very well the the demonic voice is kind of whispering at you in your subconscious, And trying to get you to believe a lie that doesn't exist it's not real they don't think that about you you don't think that about yourself take your thoughts captive and know that in Christ you are new you are his you are perfectly chosen by him and if you're not in Christ he wants you to be his and all you got to do is surrender and say yes you are more than enough I don't need the things of this world I don't need anybody else but you Jesus come and make me whole I repent, I believe, and I find newness. And we have to start walking in that, Christ follows. We can't can't just live in this place of let's just not offend people and be quiet. We have to start walking in a joy and a love that just is exuberant through who we are. So that people will see, man, when they say they love God and they say they love people, they mean it. They're investing into the kingdom of God by loving people. That starts by your quiet time staying at home so you can have that spiritual tension, so you can be prepared. Put on the the battlefield. Pull up, gird your loins is what Scripture says. Like, get ready for the battle because it's here and it's present and it is killing people. But we have the hope in Jesus that he is more than enough. So how do we defeat demons? How do we defeat the demonic? Genesis chapter 3. What is this this time that we talked about? So, God has seen the fall. Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, and he's about to discipline everybody. And he's about to say, here's the, the cost of sin in your life. And here's the cost of defiance for you, Satan. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, this is the first picture of the gospel. He says, to the serpent, to Satan, This is God. I will put my enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What he's saying right there is, here is Jesus, this Messiah is coming, and he will be birthed from Mary, a human. The woman will be birthed, your destruction, Satan. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know how we do it? You know how we defeat them? We trust in the one who's already written the date of their destruction on their heads. Amen, church? We become less and he becomes more. He is more than enough. So let's stand up and worship the one who makes Jesus, or who, who is Jesus, who makes the darkness tremble. Let's go. Come on.